This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Carol Van Dam, and here's what's coming up. The true cost of war isn't measured just in casualties, but also in the loss of intellectual capital. And this war risks condemning Sudan to a future bereft of learning, innovation, progress and hope. Tirani co-chair, Khalid Tirani, co-chair of the so-called Abandoned Biden campaign on why American Arabs can't get behind Biden's re-election efforts because of his policy on the Israel-Hamas conflict. Also, many South Africans say President Ramaphosa's State of the Nation address does not reflect reality. And U.S. commentators often describe Chinese policy in Africa as a death trap. But what's the reality? All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa delivered a State of the Nation speech last night that frustrated many citizens. The president glossed over the country's current crises, which include extreme violent crime, the world's highest unemployment rate, and failing services delivery. Instead, Ramaphosa painted a picture of a healthy democracy. Darren Taylor reports. Social media networks in South Africa were on fire while Ramaphosa spoke, with many users venting anger and disbelief. One user asked, where does Cyril live? Another wrote, Mr. President, please share what you're smoking. Opposition leader John Stiernazen perhaps said it best. Well, I thought it was incredibly underwhelming, sort of a Alice in Wonderland type meander through a South Africa that's very far removed from the reality that many people live on a daily basis. 30 million people trapped in poverty, spiraling crime where 75 people are murdered every single day, a load-shedding crisis that's been worse than it's, than it's ever been in the past, a president who says he's committed to fighting corruption, but we've dropped three points in the corruption index. It was Ramaphosa's claim that he'd stopped corruption in the African National Congress, the ANC, that ignited the most outrage. He said he'd ended the era of state capture when his predecessor, Jacob Zuma, and senior party officials allegedly stole $30 billion from state-owned enterprises. Great progress has been made in bringing those responsible for all these acts of malfeasance to justice. More than 200 accused persons are being prosecuted as we speak. More are under investigation. Stolen funds are being recovered. But none of those being pursued are senior ANC officials. Zuma remains free. And sitting near Ramaphosa was his deputy, Paul Mashatile, just one of many top party officials deeply implicated in corruption, but not being investigated. One of the president's closest allies, Energy Minister Gwede Mantashe, told VOA Ramaphosa's address was a very realistic assessment of the South Africa of today and that critics were jealous of the ANC's achievements. In his speech, the president often referred to a child named Tinsualo. 
She was one of democracy's children, he said, and just one example of a great South Africa built by the ANC after apartheid ended in 1994. When Tinsalo entered the world of work, she was able to progress and thrive with the support of the states, employment equity and black economic empowerment policies. With the income she earned, she was able to save. She was also able to support her parents. She was able to start a family, to move into a better house and to live a better life. But as many highlighted on social media, Ramaphosa didn't mention the millions more people who go hungry every day and the millions who leave schools and universities and cannot find jobs. He said he'd employed 20,000 extra police officers over the past year, but didn't cite any evidence to suggest a decline in sky-high crime. Like he's done every year since taking office in 2018, Ramaphosa promised that debilitating electricity outages blamed on state corruption would soon be over. Minutes after his speech, much of the country was plunged into darkness once again. To loud laughter in Parliament, the President promised to build a high-speed railway between the cities of Johannesburg and Durban, ignoring that South Africa's debt stands at almost $270 billion. Even some close to the ANC were left confused. Mbazima Shiloa, who once stood next to Ramaphosa fighting apartheid for trade unions, told VOA the president had wasted his final opportunity to gain the trust of citizens with an election just around the corner and the ANC's popularity waning. It's one thing to say we are now a better country than under apartheid, and that's really true. But I don't think we can say we are anywhere closer to the promise of the Freedom Charter or the promise of the Reconstruction and Development Program. Shiloa describes these blueprints for progress in South Africa as almost dead, mainly because of government policies that delivered luxury to an ANC-connected elite but failed to give prosperity to the masses. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. From South Africa, we go to Sudan. UNICEF reports 300 days of conflict in Sudan have unleashed a wave of atrocities on children, with many suffering from hunger, violence, and horrific abuse. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The United Nations Children's Fund reports 4 million children in Sudan have been displaced in what is seen as the largest displacement of children in the world. To break down the magnitude of this crisis, UNICEF notes 13,000 children have been displaced every day for the past 300 days into a situation of chaos and despair. UNICEF spokesperson James Elder, who has just returned from Sudan, says these children have lost everything. They have lost all their possessions. Many are separated from family and friends. He says they are not safe from the fighting raging around them and have lost hope 
that things will get better. The consequences of the past 300 days mean that more than 700,000 children are likely to suffer the most dangerous form of malnutrition this year. UNICEF won't be able to treat more than 300,000 of those without improved access and without additional support. In that case, tens of thousands would likely die. During the same period, Elder says there's been a five-fold increase in verified cases of killings, sexual violence, and child recruitment from a year ago. That, he says, equates to a terrifying number of children killed, raped, or recruited. He says the war between Sudan's National Army and the paramilitary rapid support forces is ravaging a whole society, destroying the health and nutrition systems and destroying families in their ability to fend for themselves and protect themselves. Elder warns the war is killing the very people who could nurture and productively develop the country. He says this is a war that is destroying the future of an entire generation. But this is also a war-destroying opportunity, and that destroys a country. The true cost of war isn't measured just in casualties, but also in the loss of intellectual capital. And this war risks condemning Sudan to a future bereft of learning, innovation, progress and hope. Elder says the only way to get out of the situation is to negotiate a ceasefire and ensure aid is no longer blocked. However, with no ceasefire in sight, he says aid agencies must negotiate with the warring parties for safe humanitarian access across conflict lines and across borders. He adds the support of international donors is essential to help the many at-risk children to survive. Martin Griffiths is the UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator. Earlier this week, he said he has been in touch with Sudan's rival generals, Armed Forces Commander General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan and RSF leader General Mohamed Hamdan. He says he was trying to bring them together to begin negotiations for aid access. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. In the U.S. Midwestern state of Michigan, Biden administration aides met yesterday with Arab Americans who are not happy with President Joe Biden for refusing to push for a full ceasefire in the Hamas war. The group called Abandon Biden Campaign is urging people in swing states like Michigan to express their disapproval with the Biden administration for supporting Israel's continued attack on the Palestinian people. Khalid Tourani, the group's co-chair, tells me that Arab Americans cannot get behind Biden when he refuses to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. We are a group of citizens who are concerned and really disheartened by the administrations and particularly President Biden's role in supporting the genocide against the Palestinians in Gaza. So we we gave an ultimatum that you should call for a ceasefire. I mean, it, it is no brainer to call for a ceasefire when there is a genocide and the president uh, did not and still doesn't. So we started the Abandon Biden campaign that we, we must, uh, this president who is not only complicit, but is playing really a pivotal role in the ongoing genocide, not only by supporting it, but also by preventing any effort to stop the genocide. You've mentioned genocide several times. You know, you feel it's genocide, but the Biden administration and many other countries say that it's not genocide because they, and Israel, of course, says they are defending themselves after the October 7th attack by Hamas. 
Right. You know, defending yourself is one thing and committing genocide is another thing, and they're not exclusively mutual. That is one thing. The second thing is there are uh, there have been several, several world-renowned scholars who are experts on genocide. One of them is actually an Israeli or former Israeli citizen who said this is genocide. I'm not going by my opinion. I'm going by the opinion of these scholars. One of them specializes in the Holocaust and genocide studies. And he said, this is a genocide. I don't need a scholar to tell me that when you kill 20,000 Palestinian women and children, that this is a genocide. I don't need somebody to tell me it is a genocide when I see that 70% of residential uh, dwellings in Gaza has been destroyed and 90% of the population is displaced. I don't need a scholar to tell me it's a genocide. Did you see any merit in the possibility of being in the same room, either President Biden or Secretary Blinken, just to spell out your feelings and, you know, those of other Palestinian Americans to say this is this is what is going on? It certainly is not about our feelings or about our sentiment. It's about a genocide that is ongoing. It is about massacres, if you don't want to use genocide. It is about the daily killing of many, many hundreds of Palestinian civilians in the Gaza Strip. And that needs to stop. And the other thing is stop using our tax dollar to kill our kinfolks and kill human beings and civilians in any case. When, when somebody wants to hide behind that Israel has the right to defend themselves, it, it tells me they, they are completely disconnected from the magnitude of the human tragedy that has befallen on the people of Gaza. When 90%, when 2 million Palestinians are displaced from their homes, something has got to shake you on the inside. That was Khalid Tarani, co-chair and co-founder of the Abandoned Biden campaign, speaking with me by phone. He says the organization has not suggested another candidate for members to support. For listening to Africa News Tonight, I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voaafrica.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. Some African nations have extensive Chinese loans and are suffering from out-of-control debt exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, the invasion of Ukraine, and high interest rates. Some commentators in the United States and other Western nations often describe Chinese policy in Africa as a debt trap, part of a deliberate strategy to loan unmanageable sums to African countries, draw them into China's sphere of influence, and then force unfair commitments upon them. How valid is the concept of debt trap diplomacy? Well, Paul Nantulia, a research associate at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, explains that concept to VOA senior analyst Mohamed El Shanawi. 
Well, Mohammed, let me say two things. Number one, on the allegation of debt traps, you know, the idea that uh, China deliberately lends money to countries that it knows will not pay back in order to seize strategic assets. Now, if we look at the data and uh, the empirical evidence, there's no African country that has uh, surrendered a strategic asset to Chinese lenders after failing to pay back Chinese loans. Let's look at Zambia, highly indebted to China, has been scrambling to get a debt forgiveness and debt restructuring from China. Zambia has not given up a strategic asset to the Chinese. Let's look at Kenya, another highly indebted country, about $6 billion that it owes to different Chinese lenders. There had been a lot of speculation in the press that Kenya surrendered the strategic port of Mombasa as collateral in the event of a failure to repay its loan to China. On closer inspection, that has found to be false. Kenya has not surrendered its assets to the Chinese. The other story was Uganda surrendering the Entebbe airport, which was opened in time for the non-aligned summit, uh, which was built by Chinese entities. Uganda has not surrendered that asset. So there's no evidence that any African country has surrendered an asset uh, to China as a result of failing to, to repay Chinese loans. So that is the first thing I would say. Nevertheless, and this is the second point, Mohammed, African countries have not been disciplined in dealing with uh, Chinese lenders and in dealing with other lenders, like uh, private Western lenders, who, by the way, hold most of the debt stock in Africa. Most of Africa's debt stock is held by commercial Western lenders. Very high interest rates. That debt burden is, is real. And the problem, Mohammed, is in two areas. One, there's the lack of discipline, as I mentioned. There's the lack of oversight. And many African countries are flouting the rules that are very, very clear on publicizing their debt stock and involving the public. Because, you know, that is the one of the best ways to protect oneself from getting into odious debt. So I think this is a major problem. And there are quite a number of countries that are in trouble. Ethiopia, Angola, Ghana is approaching a situation that is unmanageable. And they all have found themselves in a situation where they've got to plead with Chinese uh, lenders. Because remember, Chinese lenders, they've got to get their money back. And uh, it's quite fashionable to talk about debt traps. But there's also such a thing as a, as a lender's trap. One has to get one's money back. China is not a Santa Claus. Some, China is not Father Christmas. China has got to get its money back. And this is one thing that African countries have got to realize and understand. So yes, there's a lack of discipline, there's a lack of focus, there's a lack of transparency. One of the reasons why these accusations of debt traps are so common on the African continent is because governments are refusing to publish their debts as required by law. Governments are not making the public aware of the debt negotiations and the details of their debt negotiations uh, with Chinese lenders. So in the absence of that information, the public is left with no choice but to say that there's actually something they have to hide and there's misbehavior going on. And there has been misbehavior going on, even though assets have not been seized but there's been a lot of misbehavior on the part of lenders and also on the part of borrowers. So I think, really, getting back to your point, African countries are in trouble and they really need to exert a lot more discipline in the manner in which they negotiate debt, especially with their Chinese lenders and with other new lenders on the continent, such as Turkey and Saudi Arabia. Would the U.S. policy in Africa see a major change if the U.S. election produced another president? Well, you know, most African, and it's, it's very interesting because I was always talking to African colleagues on this issue. On the African continent, the perception is that U.S. policy doesn't really change, regardless of who occupies the White House, whether it's a Democratic administration or a Republican administration, or whether it's Trump or Biden. There's a sense that U.S. policy fundamentally doesn't really change. So I don't think that African countries are going to be expecting much. I think there are certain uh, elements that are associated with U.S. policy that remain constant, regardless. Now, the delivery and the style and the tone of policy might change, but fundamentally, African audiences really do not see much of a difference between Democratic and Republican administrations. And I suspect it will be the same next year.
That was Paul Nantulia, a research associate at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, speaking with my colleague Mohamed El Shanawi. February is the month to spotlight the achievements and contributions of African Americans and the celebration of Black History Month. This year's theme is African Americans and the Arts. Jesse Holland, historian, journalist, TV personality, and professor, continues his conversation with my colleague VOA's Kim Lewis, highlighting some of the contributions of African American musicians, past and present. You had mentioned Afrofuturism, and a, a lot of the music today, you can find that in music of Janelle Monet, and even going back into the 70s and 60s, Jimi Hendrix. So in looking at some other aspects of music, who today stands out to you? Oh, of course, you can't talk about music and African-Americans today without talking about the work of Beyonce. And there are so many people that you, I, I'm, I'm afraid to even talk about it for not mentioning some of the great work that's being done out there. We just lost Aretha Franklin, who rewrote how we think of music. You have Stevie Wonder, who's still performing to this day. And you have so many great people in rap, in jazz, in all parts of music that it, you can't talk about American music without talking about African-Americans. And of course, you know, African-Americans and jazz was one of the first American original form of music. Other forms of music may have come from other places. African-Americans and jazz and blues began here. So you can't talk about American music without somehow, some way, of course, giving African-Americans some credit for making it into what it is. Absolutely. And you mentioned Aretha Franklin, who many, and including myself, say not only was she the queen of soul, she was just the queen, period. Because she did all genres of music, even opera. Right. If you have not listened to Aretha Franklin sing opera or gospel or country or jazz or blues, you don't know America. Absolutely. That's a really good point. So, and just wrapping this up, uh, Jesse, how can a person discover and really enjoy the contributions of African Americans? Well, of course, being a Washingtonian myself, I would say if you want to learn about the history of African Americans, there's this great new museum on the National Mall, the Smithsonian Museum, National Museum of African American History and Culture. You should make that your first stop. But of course, there's so much material that's available. And of course, this is something I tell people all the time. History is being made every day. Go to a local African-American church. Go to a library. Go to an HBCU. History is being made at these places every day, and they should be appreciated for their contributions. That was Jesse Holland, historian, journalist, TV personality, and professor speaking with my colleague, Kim Lewis. Seven royal artifacts looted 150 years ago by British colonial forces from Ghana's ancient Asante Kingdom were, have been returned. The items were presented yesterday to the kingdom by the Fowler Museum at the University of California in Los Angeles, which has kept them since the 1960s. 
The Associated Press says the artifacts include an elephant tail whisk, an ornamental chair made of wood, leather, and iron, two gold stool ornaments, a gold necklace, and two bracelets. It's the latest in a series of stolen treasured items being repatriated to several African nations after decades of resistance from European and Western governments and museums. Activists say thousands more are still out of reach. A Ghanaian cultural expert who helped negotiate the return of those items says the repatriation of the artifacts to Ghana signifies the return, in his words, of our souls. And that wraps it up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, please visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, David Vandy, and our engineer, Jumbi Hamzai, thanks for choosing The Voice of America.